But it's a great pleasure to introduce right now uh, Chris Preble. Chris is the is Cato's Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies. He's responsible for working with a, a staff of scholars and experts producing books and studies and testimony and uh, all sorts of different outputs uh, dealing with the defense and foreign policy of the United States. He's, uh, 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 he's the author of a number of books, and I should point out that before he entered an academic career, after which he then went to the Cato Institute, he was a naval officer, so he appreciates being on time. Chris. It was the US Navy, Tom, not the German uh, Army. But anyway, um, but we are on time. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for uh, being here. Uh, I came back from uh, hanging out with the Democrats in Philadelphia just for this, so thank, thank you for giving me an excuse to do that. Uh, so uh, what I want to do this morning is um, talk about, as the slide says, a foreign policy for constitutional republic. It's on this little card here. I checked that I got the title right. Um, but before I do that, I think it's important to sort of explain what foreign policy we have now before I talk about what foreign policy we should have. And um, there are... What foreign policy do we have right now? It's a mess, right? There's a more formal name for the foreign policy we have now. A lot of people call it primacy, primacy. Sometimes you'll hear other terms thrown around like liberal hegemony, which is like what people's eyes glaze over, or dominance, global dominance. Um, and, but we stick with primacy. It seems to be a fairly common use. And it has this idea that... Uh, peace in the world, such as it is, uh, is a function of preponderant U.S. power. Um, and I think that's one of the ideas that unites all of the various uh, views on the conduct of U.S. foreign policy, uh, that we have to maintain this vast capability, far greater than is actually necessary to defend us and our interests, uh, in order to uh, cow or deter or, or uh, sh uh, stare down challengers. And it actually was spelled out fairly clearly in a document uh, created right at the dawn of the post-Cold War era. So this is in the George H.W. Bush administration. Um, some of the key figures during that time you might recall, Dick Cheney was the Secretary of Defense. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz uh, was uh, an uh, undersecretary at the time. Uh, and Zalmay Khalilzad, who also served in the second Bush administration, ultimately as uh, uh, U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, he had a key hand in writing this document. And it, it emerged not long after it was drafted. It actually was never formally promulgated by the, uh, the George H.W. Bush administration because they felt it was a little bit too blunt. Okay? Uh, but the basic premise of U.S. foreign policy was spelled out in this document and has remained consistent, I would argue, uh, for the most part to this day. So it was to pre prevent the emergence of a new rival capable of challenging the U.S. in any part of the world, any vital area of the world, which is mostly uh, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, we would retain this power. Again, that you think about this where we were. In, in 1991 or, or early 1992, 
We have this vast military which had just defeated decisively Saddam Hussein's army in Kuwait, driven it from Kuwait. Uh, this army was created for the purposes of fighting the Soviet Union, but it for the most part was still in existence. Uh, two, two million plus people in uniform, um, 580 some odd ships, give or take, um, thousands and thousands of aircraft, both in the Navy and the Air Force. Um, and, and we would retain this power now that the Soviet Union had disappeared to deter potential competitors, including key allies like Germany and Japan, from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. So this was the premise of that document. And like I said, it is a consistent theme that runs through US foreign policy to this day uh, under this idea of primacy, that it is the purpose of US military power to deter all rivals, not merely adversarial states, not merely states that disagree with us on critical issues of governance and economy, but even our allies, our wealthy democratic uh, uh, free market allies uh, in Europe and Asia. So that's the premise. And in order to do that, you have to have a large, active, and yes, costly military. And this is, this is key. It is large and active because it is not focused primarily on defending the United States and our interests. It tells the rest of the world that we take your interests as seriously as you do. That is how we reassure them. That is how we discourage them from maintaining military capabilities of their own. <clears throat> and I don't think that you'll hear many people who are advocates of this, and it's a bipartisan idea among elites here in Washington in the sort of uh, Acela, you know, corridor, so to speak, right? Uh, you know, these are the, this is the, 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 the unifying theme among the foreign policy elite, that the purpose of US military power is not merely to defend the United States and protect our interests, but to defend and, uh, uh, and deter attacks against others. So uh, there are three, I think, key assumptions that explain why they think this is the right approach to the world. Um, the first is that technology has rendered geography moot, that we do not have to, that we have to take care of threats even if they are very far away from us, uh, because no threat uh, is unimportant. They're all equally important. They're all urgent. Um, the second is this idea, which I've already alluded to, which is these reassurances to our allies actually make our defense burden uh, less. They lessen our defense burden as opposed to adding to it. And the third is that a large and active military is essential to the health of the international economy. Um, so I'm going to drill down on all three of these uh, a little bit. And I want you to, to kind of walk through with me whether or not you agree. Um, first. The premises hold that geography is, if not irrelevant, uh, becoming irrelevant. That the spread of technology, the ability of countries and even now non-state actors to do harm over great distances removes the essential advantages that the United States enjoyed for uh, roughly the first uh, 150 or 170 years of its existence. 
Um, now, there's an element of this that is sort of uh, superficially obvious, right, which is things like aircraft then carrying nuclear weapons or just nuclear weapons in a, in a shipping container uh, are some pretty scary things that the founding generation couldn't even conceive of, let alone sort of anticipate in any respect. It's just completely beyond the realm of possibility. On the other hand, <clears throat> what differentiates us and has differentiated us from many of our uh, other advanced industrial economies around the world is that we have not had to fear uh, invasion and occupation by a foreign power ever or almost ever in our history, right? A good friend of mine, Will Ruger, talks about the million man swim, right? Um, uh, so I submit to you, and I, I think it's not just because I'm an ex-Navy guy and I think that water still matters, that water still matters, okay? And, and uh, it, is, it is an advantage to us that we have wide oceans to the east and west and that we have friendly, weak neighbors to the north and south. The alternative would be worse, right? So ensuring that those essential conditions remain the same and ensuring that the seas are not, uh, that do not evaporate and thus the million man swim becomes the million man march, right? Um, but if those factors remain in place, then I think uh, we are a lot more secure than the primacists make it out to be. The second is this idea that defending other countries and discouraging them from defending themselves um, is, uh, you know, eases our defense burden. I think this also is, at least bears some scrutiny. Um, You'll hear a lot of talk, you've heard a lot of talk already, I'll show a chart here in a second about this, uh, about the imbalance between what the United States spends on defense and what our allies spend on defense. And I think the critical thing I want you to just remember is, is that this is by design, right? This did not happen because we are wise and, for, and, and you know, thinking out forward and they are weak and stupid. It's because we have discouraged them, actively discouraged them, them from building up their militaries. If I were in their position, I would do exactly the same thing. If, I mean, let's be honest here, I'm not inclined to pay for things that someone else is willing to provide for me for free, right? And so I really don't fault the European and Asian allies uh, in particular for making these sorts of decisions, but I don't think it's true that uh, our defending them uh, as we have done uh, makes our defense burden less. I think it makes it greater. The third is about the international economy, and this is also a critical point, because I think if you know, if you've been paying attention and, and you know a bit about Cato's work on policy more generally, we believe that the ability to buy and sell goods unencumbered by the vagaries of borders is a fundamental human right. And the ability of the United States to be connected to the international economy uh, is what makes this economy so strong and vibrant. I believe that with everything in my being, and we have the data to prove it. So it is important for us to be able to interact in the international economy. It is not true that the functioning of the international economy depends on the U.S. Navy patrolling the seas. Again, no disrespect to my former friends and colleagues in the Navy. The reason why is because the international economy is extraordinarily resilient. It is dynamic and things change. There are disruptions from time to time. Sometimes these are disruptions that are caused by man-made events, wars, piracy, banditry, things like that. Other times they're caused by natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, et cetera, 
right? And when those things happen, there may be a short-term disruption to the flow of critical resources like oil or to other critical uh, resources in the modern economy, but the markets adapt. So the only way in which this would be true, the only way in which primacy ensures the functioning of the international economy is if some group or some state was able to cause a longer than temporary disruption to the flow of goods and services in the world economy. And I suggest to you that any state large enough to do that doesn't have an incentive in doing so because they also benefit from the international economy. And any non-state actor that really does wish to disrupt the international economy isn't strong enough to do so. Okay? So this is overblown, this danger of the uh, to the international economy and the role that the United States plays in defending it is overblown. And also, let's admit that occasionally the U.S. military's attempts to fix problems around the world have roiled international markets, right? Have actually exacerbated the problem that they're claiming to fix. So I think we have to at least admit that. Um, so I mentioned uh, this one. I'm going to come back to it because I do think that these statistics are are important to sort of keep in mind. Uh, we do this. We do a chart like this every year. My, my colleague, Travis Evans, helps me out with this. And um, James, who I guess you've met. James, where are you? Raise your hand, James. James helped me out with this stuff. James, there he is over there. So every year, there's an organization, another think tank called the International Institute for Strategic Studies. They put out something called the Military Balance. And every year, we take these statistics and we put them into some pretty charts. Uh, and as you can see, the disparity between what the United States spends and what our allies spend, both as a share of GDP and on a per capita basis, is vast. We decided this time around to show, just to sort of cleverly, I hope, um, that the NATO members, remember we've had three rounds of NATO. Can you hear me in the back if I step away from my microphone? Yes, I'm shouting. Um, we were just sort of curious. We didn't know how this would shake out. We were sort of curious, are the, are the newest members of NATO the most vulnerable and therefore the most anxious and therefore the most likely to be spending more as a share of GDP or on a per capita basis than, say, the older NATO members. That's, that's what Donald Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld called old Europe, remember famously? Old Europe versus New Europe. And the answer is no. There's no discernible difference. If anything, they spend slightly less on a per capita basis. Now, granted, their economies are smaller and their people aren't as wealthy as the, as the Western European countries, but even on a per capita basis, there's not a big difference at all. Um, they still spend far less. And I want to emphasize uh, that if I were in their position, I'd be doing the same thing. But if you think, as I do, that the core function of government is to provide defense to the citizens of that, of that society, uh, what have these countries done with the money that they might have been spending on their military? They spend it on other stuff. Percentage of government expenditures spent on the military. They spend it on other stuff. They buy fancy trains that actually work, I guess. Uh, don't blow up. Uh, they have, uh, you know, traveled to any, uh, any European um, airport, and uh, it doesn't look like LaGuardia. Uh, none of them do, actually. Uh, <laughs> it's really rather remarkable when you think about it. I'm not going to get too far down the, down the rabbit hole on that. The simple fact is they have chosen... Not, again, not unwisely in my assessment, they have chosen to invest their government expenditures in things other than defense. 
and they have some con subcontracted that function to the United States, to U.S. taxpayers, and to the U.S. military. Um, there's also this chart, which might look familiar to you. It, we, we, it's actually interesting because it has jumped around a little bit. The United States now accounts for about four, just under 40, 38% of total military spending around the world. Uh, part of that is a function of China's rising share, which is now uh, about 10%. This is the slice right there, sort of on the middle. Um, uh, a lot of people are freaked out about Russia. Russia's economy is uh, roughly the size of Portugal and Spain's put together. Uh, their military is not, uh, uh, is not nearly as formidable as uh, even a few of the European countries put together, and certainly not all of them put together. Uh, it's also true that our European allies and our Asian allies uh, do spend a considerable amount of military spending in spite of the fact that we discourage them from doing more. Um, but we account for about 38% total uh, today. So. Um, for many people, they see that statistic and they say, good. It's good that we spend so much and that that's what makes us so strong. Um, and that's why we have less to worry about. And it's not just the water, Preble. It's not just that we have weakened uh, neighbors. It's because we have a strong military to defend us. Well, I think that's not the only problem. It's costly. Uh, it is difficult to maintain. It causes some problems inadvertently, to be sure. Um, but here's the part of the, the, the lecture that I give, which I don't give to, a, to a, say, a meeting of the World Affairs Council in your local community or to the typical university. This is the part of the talk where I give to the Libertarian Cato Institute's Cato University. Right? And I realized when I, after I did this slide, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the problem with primacy. It should be the problem with primacy. The problem with primacy, I think, in addition to the fact that it doesn't work very well and it's based on a bunch of assumptions that are at least questionable, is that it's inconsistent with our founding principles. And those founding principles should not be discarded lightly because those founding principles were actually pretty good. Um, Common defense, fairly typical phrase. If, if we take this seriously, if we take the, the passage in the Constitution that speaks to the importance of the common defense and provide for the common defense, it does beg the question, why is that good for us but not good for them? Why is that principle that the purpose of government is to provide through the common defense, why does that not apply to them? And, and I think this is where we sort of got off track. And, I, and in, in defense of those who came before us, right, at the dawn of the Cold War, the end of World War II, when Europe and Asia were broken by warfare, badly broken by two wars, in the case of Europe in particular, the idea that the United States would provide security to these countries so that they could rebuild their shattered countries, their polities, their economies, was the right one. It was also right because we were confronting a common enemy that was, had legitimate capabilities for projecting power over great distances, the Soviet Union, with nuclear weapons. All made sense. And so I think separating what they did then from what we do now is critical. The world has changed in important ways. And the idea that we would continue to discourage them from doing more to defend themselves and their interests, I think, is badly short-sighted. 
But back to the libertarian part of my talk. Uh, how, many people, how many people are familiar with this phrase from James Madison? Let's see a quick show of hands. How many people have heard this expression? Of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of perpetual warfare. How many people recognize this, right? About a third for those of you who are listening. Um, how many people have heard the expression, war is the health of the state? Eh, about the same number, okay? All right, interesting. Um, here's the thing. The guy who said war is the health of the state was this guy Randolph Bourne. He was sort of an odd socialist operating in the early 20th century, and no one's ever heard of him. How many people have heard of James Madison, right? Okay, there we go. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, this idea of Madison's, not unique to Madison, informed the founders' approach to the construction of the Constitutional Republic, the, Constitution, the creation of the Constitution, and what came after. Um, they had this deep-seated anxiety about warfare because they saw warfare's capacity for growing the power of the state. And it is not unique by any respect. It is, it is universal in human history. One of my favorite books is by Bruce Porter. It's called War and the Rise of the State. And this is what Porter, this is how he summarizes the problem. A government at war is a juggernaut of centralization determined to crush any internal opposition that impedes the mobilization of militarily vital resources. This centralizing tendency of war has made the rise of the state throughout much of history a disaster for human liberty and rights. So the idea that the state grows in order to wage war and war is the health of the state is a widely held one. Here's another quote uh, from, from uh, Madison at the Constitutional Convention. The way that they would constrain the new government's ability to wage war is to provide no standing army, right? Which seems really radical to us. It was not so radical back then, uh, the idea that uh, when a war was needed to defend the nation from harm, the army would be raised, and fight the war. But a standing military would be a threat to liberty. Now, in fairness, Madison was one of those who somehow managed to avoid service during the Revolutionary War, but George Washington famously did not. This man was no pacifist. And yet even George Washington advised his countrymen to avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments, which under any form of government are inauspicious to liberty and are, which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to Republican liberty. So this is the idea that informed their approach to foreign policy and the conduct of warfare in the late 18th century. I think it's still a pretty good approach to the conduct of foreign policy, and I'm going to try and convince you why that is. Back then, Washington said, as I did at the outset, we have this unique circumstance. We are separated by a world of water. And therefore, if we are wise, we shall avoid being drawn into the labyrinth of other countries' politics and in their destructive wars. Their destructive wars, not our destructive wars. 
But that did not mean, of course, that the United States was going to try to isolate itself from the rest of the world. Far from it, because Washington believed just as strongly, and the other founders, that the great rule was for us to have commercial relations with as many countries as possible, but as little political connection as possible. Jefferson, in his first inaugural, said, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. So this was the model at the time of the dawn of the republic, the constitutional republic, and for at least the first 100 years or so of the nation's history, until the early 20th century. Okay. You may look on this and say, this is horribly naive. This is, there is no possible way that we can do this in our day and age, given the dangers that are confronting us today. And I will tell you, there were people back then who thought that the power of the state was too constrained, that the Constitution did not allow enough flexibility for the new government to wage war uh, as often as it should. The problem with the argument that their environment was conducive to a limited state and our environment is not is, well, facts. Um, this is where they were in 1800. You had the British still in Canada and parts of the, what we call now Ohio, Northwest Territories, right? They hadn't evacuated. You had the, the Spanish in Florida doing a lousy job of it, by the way, just completely mucking it up, okay? So they were down there making a mess of things. You had the British and French navies patrolling the seas, and they had this wonderful little practice. They called it impressment. We call it involuntary servitude. They would sidle up to an American commercial vessel, fishing ship, and say, you there, what's your name? Your name is Smith. You must be a deserter from the British Navy. You're coming with us. This happened all the time. Now, the dirty little secret is he probably was a deserter from the British Navy, but that is immaterial, okay? Immaterial, because the idea that some Navy could just sidle up to any American ship just doing its own, minding its own business, and take its crew just sort of didn't sit very well with people. And then on top of all that, lest we forget, there were those people who were there before the Anglos, and as the Constitution was being written, and as it was being debated, and as it was being ratified, there were constant attacks along the frontier by these people, these natives, who were not happy about the encroachment of the whites. This was the environment in which the Founding Fathers created a document that, it, that put extraordinary constraints on the ability of the state to wage war. Why did they do that? Not because the international environment was so conducive to peace. Not because they were living in this nirvana of safety and security. No, because they were so fearful of the ability of warfare and the possibility of warfare growing the power of the state, they put enormous constraints on it. And here is where we are today. Then, just a... Then, now. Then, now. Now, this is a really misleading chart because it doesn't count the 4,200 military bases in the United States of America, right? Those aren't even shown here, right? This is just all of the places around the world where the United States maintains different sized bases, facilities. Now, some of these are fairly small. You know, sometimes it's a radar installation or a radio 
site. Maybe it's a depot for the storage of material. The point is that the U.S. is globally deployed. The U.S. military is everywhere, nearly everywhere in the world. And I think it's hard to say that we today are more vulnerable to harm than they were back then. Maybe that's just me. Uh, it's expensive to do that. A uh, couple different ways to look at this. This is another reason why we should be anxious about the size uh, of the U.S. military. Um, you will often hear people talk about the amount of military spending as a share of GDP, a share of total output, and it is true that share of total output has declined since not just from, since the peak in World War II, but since the peak in the Korean War. Why is that? Because the U.S. economy has grown, despite the U.S. government's uh, attempts to destroy the U.S. economy. Um, in spite of their best efforts, the U.S. economy continues to grow. So this is a true statement. Okay? U.S. military spending as a share of GDP is declining. It is also true that military spending, if you are like me and you think that, you, that mil the military is one of those core functions of government, one of those things we actually want the government to be doing, uh, it is true that the share of government spending that, going, that goes to the military is declining and has been declining. And in fact, by the middle of the next decade, we will be spending more on the interest on the debt than we are spending on the military as a share of government expenditures. Two true facts. But there's also this, okay? You'll hear a lot of talk about how the U.S. military has been gutted over the last 10 or 15 years, or there's the sequestration, the Budget Control Act, the caps, it's all disaster. Um, the simple fact is that the yellow line in the middle represents the real defense dollars dedicated to the base budget, that is the budget that is not going to fight the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as you can clearly see, the number is rising. U.S. military spending in real inflation-adjusted dollars to the base budget has grown. And critically, this is another chart that shows you the different variables. I'm going to skip over this. It has grown in inflation-adjusted dollars to beyond what we spent on average during the Cold War. The gold is the average, and the current defense outlays are this blue line right there the blue line, right? And you can see that we're well above where we were on average during the Cold War in inflation-adjusted dollars, real dollars. Now, I throw up in here a chart. On this chart, there are two lines here. I wonder if I have a pointer on this chart. Maybe not. See the yellow line there at the top? That's 5% of GDP, and the green is 4% of GDP. So when you hear people say, we need to have a minimum of 4% of GDP, 4% for freedom is one of the lines that just, just rolls off the tongue. Um, uh, when you hear people say that, we have to spend a minimum of 4% of GDP on defense. No, just have this chart in the back of your head, right? You say, well, you know, if we were actually going to spend 4% of GDP on defense, we'd be spending more than we did, well, during any war since World War II. And if you were going to spend 5% of GDP, you'd be spending more than we spent during World War II. So it costs a lot of money. And the reason why we spend so much relative to 
where we were in the Cold War is because we ask our military to do a lot. This has been the theme of my, my talk from the very beginning, right? We are expecting the U.S. military to do more than merely defend the United States and its interests from harm. We are expecting it to provide security for practically the whole planet, the northern part, basically. So if primacy, the current foreign policy consensus, left and right, this is not a partisan discussion, right? People on the left and people on the right, Democrats and Republicans both. If this is the core premise of primacy, this is the core premise of what we call restraint, the opposite of primacy. Instead of having a large, active, and costly military geared towards shaping the international order, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to dissuade other countries from doing more to defend themselves and your interests. You're trying to send a message to the entire international economy that we, we alone, are the ones providing the rules of the road. And if that's the message of what you're trying to do, you need, a, you need primacy. That's what they do. Our approach is this. A large, strong, a strong, strong, rarely used military geared primarily to defense. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. Um, now, <clears throat> I'll close with this and we have plenty of time for questions. The dirty little secret is that uh, a country the size of the United States, that is to say as wealthy as we are and as large as we are, I like to point out to people, I grew up in Maine. My mom and dad still live in the house where I grew up, in Maine. I like to travel. We've been to uh, Hawaii many times, okay? And Hawaii is entitled, under the terms of the Constitution, to the same protections that I am and my, and my family members are in Maine, right? It's a big country. Having that much space requires a large military to provide that measure of security so that I don't have to worry about the million-man swim or the million-man march. Right? So having a military large enough and strong enough to defend the United States from harm will also be capable of doing lots of other things around the world. That's just the simple reality. And so the last aspect of restraint that we have to talk about is what rules should we have to govern how we use that military? Because a military that is able to defend the people in, in Hawaii as easily as it defends the people in California or Oklahoma could easily project power to, I don't know, it's the, south tip, the southern tip of South America, just sort of do the mental map, right? It's a, big, it's a big country. It's a big planet, too. But we can go a long ways, right? So the temptation to use this military is very, very strong. So years ago, when I wrote this book, The Power Problem, <clears throat> I talked about uh, a set of rules that we should keep in mind when people come to us and say, you have this capability, you must use it for something beyond just merely self-defense. The first is, if we're asking US military personnel to risk their lives in a foreign conflict, there has to be a compelling national security interest at stake. I believe that, we can debate that, but I think that is a critical criteria for the use of force. Now. If we can debate what those 
compelling US national security interests are, and those are debatable propositions, I tend to focus on fairly narrow things like the safety and security of the, and the territorial sovereignty of the United States and our ability to conduct our affairs in a free and open way, right? Our, which means our connection to the international economy is critical. That's a vital national interest, okay? But when you hear someone say, we are intervening in this conflict and no one else in the region or in the world has anything to fear by our intervention in this conflict because we have no interest at stake. That's when you sort of say, whoa, hey. The check engine light comes on. Um, there must be strong public support for the mission. Um, I feel quite strongly about this because uh, I don't think it is right to send the U.S. military into a conflict if there is not support for it back home. And strong public support is critical uh, because it can't just be a passing fancy. It can't just be, oh, let's go get the bastards. You might have heard that, right? Uh, that's not strong public support. That's sort of a knee-jerk public, public support. So you have to test the, the public's commitment to this idea. There's a couple of different ways to do it. We could be really creative about it in 21st century and dancing with the stars and that sort of thing and phone our, you know, dial up, uh, you know, 800 yes, 800 no, you know, dial it on our phone. No, no, we don't need any of that stuff. It's in the Constitution. The Constitution says that the power of the war, war, war powers are vested in the, in the Congress and in the people's house, the house that is closest to the people. Madison actually said that the clause of the Constitution that vested the war powers in the Congress was the most important clause of the entire document. And yet we haven't had a declaration of war since. Later than that, actually, 1943, we declared war against Romania. It was a weird situation. Close. Yeah, candy, candy cigar. Okay, so let's let's. This is a very low bar, I mean extremely low bar to set. When I, when I joined the military, I took an oath to defend the Constitution. It's interestingly, it's not that different from the oath that members of Congress take or the President takes to defend the Constitution. They have an obligation to do their duty, and they haven't, and that's a, and that's a mistake. We should hold them to account. Um, okay, now, in order to gauge the strength of that public support, we probably need to have an honest conversation about how, it's going to, how much it's going to cost and how we're going to pay for it. Now, here's where I have to emphasize that I'm talking here about wars of choice, which we, the United States of America, have the luxury of choosing, right? Wars are rarely forced on us. Okay? We are choosing to wage war somewhere else to advance a vital national security interest. That's the purpose. That's the case that the interventionists are making. And so they should be compelled to spell out the costs and how we're going to pay for them. And you have to do that in order to gauge the, public's degree, the level of public support, right? Because it's one thing to fight, oh, it's going to be cheap and easy, and the troops will be home by December, nothing to worry about, right? We've heard it all before. So I think an honest discussion as part of the debate over how strong its public support is, does that mean higher taxes? Does that mean cuts in your Social Security benefits? Does this mean more debt? What's it going to, do? What's it going to take? How are we going to pay for this? Um, in order to know the costs, you need to know what you're asking the military to do in the first place. What exactly is the mission? 
What are you expecting it to accomplish? And that, too, is something that is not debated as often as it should be, right? We simply assume that, uh, you know, the United, the United States military is a really big hammer. Every problem is a nail. What's the problem, right? Hammer, nail. Easy. Bang. Right? It's not that easy. So let's have an honest conversation about what we expect our military to accomplish and maybe try to assess how long it might take, what resources you're going to need, because we've got to have this conversation about costs. It's all wrapped up. It's all together. The last point I'll make, and I have to say this, even though I, I, I wish I didn't have to say this, uh, uh, war is a horrible thing, right? Civilized society abhors war for the right reasons. It kills people and breaks things, including the people who don't deserve to be killed, right? Leave aside the stuff about the growth of the state. Maybe you don't even care that much about that, and that's fine, okay? But war is a horrible thing. And when we wage it, it has to be for really good reasons, compelling reasons. I would argue that the fifth point, in some respects, is the most important point for the United States of America. Because no one else is in a position to stop us from waging war and especially not from starting war. They can stop us from winning them, but they can't stop us from starting them, okay? So that puts an additional burden on us, on the citizens of this republic, to constrain our government's willingness to go to war. Because if you have the military in being, which we have, and if any distant problem appears to have a ready military solution, that is a recipe for frequent, ill-considered wars. And that's precisely what I think we have today under primacy. So with that, I will take your questions. So um, sure, step up to the mic. Don't be shy. You're not shy. That's good. And uh, uh, sir, go ahead. Yes, sir. John Dennis from Connecticut. Simple question. How would you apply these principles to uh, Desert Storm, the first uh, Gulf War? <laughs> um, I always have a tough time answering this question because uh, I, I had a particular perspective on the first Gulf War that was different from everyone else's in that I went through the Suez Canal at a, during a, on a short notice little excursion there uh, to deal with that particular problem. Um, I think that at the time when the first Gulf War went down, 1990, uh, the first major conflict of the post-Cold War era, when it was clear that the Soviet Union was uh, in terminal decline, uh, the idea that we would communicate to the rest of the world that uh, willy-nilly annexation of your neighbor's territory is not the sort of thing that we want to see in this post-Cold War world, right? If that was the key message emerging from the first Gulf War, then I think it is defensible. Okay? Um, the fact that that war was conducted with considerable international support, both financial and material, um, is an additional mark in its favor. Okay? So it is defensible. But in retrospect, we can see that that war did not solve 
the deeper problems afflicting Iraq and the Gulf region, and the aftermath of that war was a cause for subsequent wars. So I think it is a decidedly mixed bag. Um, if you look at the criteria that I spelled out, okay, it meets those criteria. Okay? There was a, no, a national interest at stake. Again, you could argue how compelling it was, but there was a, at least a debate was conducted in the realm of a national interest. Our access to oil is a, is a national interest. Again, we can debate that point, right? Um, there was strong public support for the mission. Interestingly, remember, not as strong that then than uh, as, as, as for the second Gulf War, second Iraq War. There was actually stronger public support for in March of 2003 than in January of, two, of 1991. Um, I think it was debated reasonably well, uh, that first war. Um, and the costs, interestingly enough, um, appear to have been largely covered by others. Uh, those countries that weren't able to contribute military assets gave money. So in that respect, you know, again, I think it was defensible. But even the, the point is that even the easy conflict, even the one that seems sort of obvious, is more complicated than it appears on first glance. Thank you for your question. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. My name is Brandon Yates. I'm a, st I'm a student at Colorado Christian University. Hi. My question is on access to the, to the international economy. You mentioned that early on in your, in your speech as one of the pillars of primacy. Yeah. And my concern is that as China continues to expand its presence in the South China Sea, it's not only a threat to perhaps America, but also, uh, more importantly, to this other South Chinese, South Chinese Sea actors mm -hmm. um, who have a vested interest in not having their territory taken. So my question is, in that situation, is that a justification for primacy, or is there a better way for that situation to be diffused? No, I, I think that primacy makes that problem worse. Okay, so, <clears throat> so the question is, um, does, do, does China's activities in the South China Sea, island building and claim, you know, asserting territorial claims, which are dubious at best, um, these represent a threat to the countries in the region, the countries who have competing claims, for example, or also interest in maintaining access to the international economic system through trade routes. Um, primacy tells these countries that we have them covered, right? It reassures them. It says, we are going to take as seriously as you do these threats to your interests, and therefore truly sort of calm down Right? That's the message. Um, I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem for two reasons. One, I don't think it's credible. And I especially don't think it's credible over the long term. Because as China's military power rises, our ability to carry through on those threats at low risk to ourselves diminish. Right? The risks for us grow. And as the risks for us grow, the credibility of our willingness to risk that much on what to us are tenuous and, and not vital claims, shrinks. That's what I see happening. The other problem is that if it were truly us versus them, and only us versus them, we are leaving on the sideline vast quantities of capability. We are literally discouraging other countries from doing more that could, could help us. 
So I'm not going to claim that in a future scenario, the United States has no interest at all. My concern is that we are setting it up so that we're the only ones that can act. I think that's a mistake. I think it's short-sighted. And again, I want to emphasize that at the time when it was executed, when the time when we started this process, it was, it was, it was well considered. It made sense. The trouble is we never revisited the bargain. Right? And it's time to do that. Now, the last point is this. It's time to revisit that bargain. That's not the same as saying, <laughs> Trump, as though, uh, it's like, uh, pay up, right? Where's, this is the bill, and you owe us money, and if you don't pay us now or in 90 days, we'll cut you off, right? That's not how responsible countries act in the international system, okay? So what I'm talking about is an honest conversation with the major countries in Europe and Asia and say, you have vital interests, we have interests, there's a difference between vital and interests, right? And you need to start taking more responsibility for your vital interests with us in support, right? But that's a conversation. That's a process. That's not a 90-day window, you know, the bills come due. Thank you. Yes, sir. I'm just going to go back and forth. Oh, see, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. Pat. Okay, Pat Spann. Make it a good one, Pat. Okay. Well, uh, unfortunately, the uh, Colorado kid stole most of my question. I've recently been looking at the... Uh, Way nine, to go, Colorado kid. Right. Nine, nine, uh, the nine-dash map, and um, the one that the Chinese are claiming. And looking at it, it, it basically makes the, all of the South China Sea uh, a Chinese lake. Yes. Basically. Yes. And, and the, the point I was wondering was... Um, if that's their end game, then they would be justified in totally shutting it down or charging tolls or whatever. It seems to me that's a major uh, transit route uh, yes. for shipping from uh, the Indian Ocean towards Japan, for instance, and Taiwan. And I guess if, if that's really their end game, uh, isn't that a, a classic example of uh, interfering with uh, uh, sea lanes, the world trade? Sure. So if they were to do that, it would be a classic case of them interfering with shipping lanes. Then the question becomes, why would they do that? And can they do that? Right? It's not like the toll on the Bay Bridge. Right? It's not that simple. Right? It is not that easy to close off those shipping routes. Not as easy as, as, as you would imply. Right? The ability of those countries to interact, to be able, be able to maintain contact with the international economy, stopping that would take an extraordinary effort on China's part. What I think is equally plausible in terms of what they're actually trying to do is preventing another country, us, from denying them access to the international economic system. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference there, right? And so I think that you can make a plausible case that if we were to communicate clearly to the Chinese, they have nothing to fear from us closing them off from the rest of the world, that they'd be a lot less, in, uh, they'd have a lot less incentive to do what they're doing. Making that commitment credible is tricky. How would you, right? how would we, I mean, through banking regulations, how would we shut them off from the rest of the, uh, from No, by denying the them access to the seas. We have a Navy that is operating in the South China Sea. Right? Thank you, Pat. Sir, he'll get another bite at the apple because, you know, he, just, <laughs> he can't get enough of me, so it's all good. <laughs> Joseph Dean of Buffalo. I, I, I propose a bit of a thought experiment. Let's say that we go to the East Asian countries and we say, well, we're going to negotiate something different, but 
in the long run, you're going to have to understand that that nuclear canopy that we put in is gone. Does that mean that two countries that could easily do it, South Korea and Japan, go nuke? And if they do, what then? Um, the answer is not necessarily. And if that doesn't sound like a very satisfying answer, it's better than the alternative. The primacists say it's inevitable. So let's think through this. Right? The primacists say that one of the key benefits that primacy provides is limiting proliferation of nuclear weapons to friendly states. And they claim, sometimes explicitly, that if we were to remove the security guarantee, or if that security guarantee attenuated over time, became less credible over time, that they would inevitably develop nuclear weapons. I'm a historian. Things don't happen inevitably. People make decisions for a set of reasons. Now, we can think of lots of reasons why the Japanese don't want to have nuclear weapons. Well, I hope we don't have to dwell on that too much. And I will tell you that while you can find some in Japan who talk openly about having nuclear weapons, most people in Japan are horrified by the prospect. And I do, in other words, so I don't think that it's the American security guarantee that is certainly not the sole thing that is discouraging the Japanese from having nuclear weapons. Uh, I'm not even convinced it's the primary thing. Okay? Korea is an even more interesting case. Okay? Because Korea, having not suffered two attacks on its territory by a, by a nuclear weapon, um, uh, you'll find people talking a little bit more openly about the prospect of having a nuclear weapon of their own, um, not least because of the crazy Kim north of the border, which is their mortal enemy. Uh, but the other interesting thing happens is when you say is when uh, you get uh, a South Korean in a you know quiet setting uh, over a drink or something, or just in a, you know off the record sort of thing, and they say. They'll be ours soon. Because they believe that reunification is going to happen someday under some set of conditions, and therefore the, Korean, the North Korean weapons become the Korean weapons. So it's an excellent question. It's worth being debated. All I say is this. We should not assume that the US security guarantee is the sole criteria explaining why countries have not proliferated. Um, we have to accept the fact that a number of countries have chosen to develop nuclear weapons even under the American security umbrella, France and UK, Israel to a certain extent, okay? And in addition, a number of countries who are not under the security umbrella have chosen to go nuclear in part to deter our attacks against them, they think. North Korea certainly falls in that category. So what I like to say is that the best you can say on behalf of primacy with respect to nuclear nonproliferation is, it's done a decent, not perfect, but decent job of deterring our friends from acquiring nuclear weapons and a lousy job of deterring our adversaries from getting them. And that, to me, doesn't look like a very good trade. Who's next? Sir. The war on terror. Keeping yes. in mind the attacks on 2000, or in in, uh, on 9-11 and the 15 years and the uh, rationale of primacy that we've apparently taken with regard to the war on terror. Would you contrast um, how your new rules of the 21st century 
would be different than what we have done under arguably primacy? Uh, the arguably primacy is a critical qualifier there. Because I think if you look at the way that we've conducted the war on terror since 9-11 with this military and being and that grew pretty substantially to fight the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, it is not obvious that primacy uh, is geared to fighting terrorism. It's not a perfect fit. In fact, a lot of the things that primacy maintains in terms of capabilities aren't very useful against fighting terrorists. Um, and so I think if you look at what the United States government has done, and not just the government, what we as citizens have done since 9-11 to make ourselves safer, most of it is not the U.S. military. Most of it is not the Defense Department. Now, um, I like to say that, you know, in any country other than the United States, having a Department of Defense and a Department of Homeland Security would be horribly redundant, right? Um, the problem, of course, is the Department of Homeland Security doesn't really depend, defend the homeland. It just harasses us, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, th there is that. Um, but I think if, what you if you look at what has actually been done to terrorist organizations since 9-11, Al-Qaeda chiefly, but not solely Al-Qaeda, um, it has been mostly an intelligence and law enforcement function, mostly. It has been rolled up in that fashion by does intelligence it, and law enforcement. Does this fit under your rules for the 21st century neatly? Neatly, no. Neatly, no. But I will say that in the context of the military mission line, remember that line? Yeah. What is the military mission? So if someone says, we're going to use the U.S. military to deal with this terrorism problem in this particular place, and you say, okay, how exactly does the military solve that problem? Explain to us how it works. I think they'd have a tough time doing that. So there is a compelling national. There is a compelling national. I'm not. I'm not disputing that at all. It's the other ask, It's the other criteria where it gets a little. It gets a little sideways. Okay. Thank you for your question. Yes, sir. Hello, Chris. Uh, I'm also uh, ex Navy as well. Awesome. Uh, spent three years uh, in the Navy during the Vietnam War era. Closest I came to a Purple Heart was sunburn in Medi the Mediterranean. But <laughs> be that as tough it may, duty. Yeah. 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 I was at the Naval Air Facility in Naples, Italy. Nice. Was nice. At any rate, you mentioned Japan. Uh, I don't know how many people here are aware of it, but Douglas MacArthur wrote their constitution for them after the yes. Second World War. Yes. He was sort of the major domo down there. Yes. Well, as I domo, understand yes. it, correct me if I'm wrong, actually I'm looking for confirmation of what my understanding is. Didn't he explicitly limit the amount they could spend in their budget per annum on the military? I, no, I don't think that's right. I think it's been more a function of, I, I don't think that's right. I think it is, is more by convention than by legislation or constitution. Okay. What he did do was write in a constitution that explicitly disavowed the use of force as an instrument of policy, that explicitly disallowed the idea of an army, right? They have a self-defense force, but not an army. And in addition to that, a set of, you know, over time, a, a set of norms have emerged in Japan that are extremely wary of military involvement. Not opposed in all circumstances under, you know, at all. And I think you do see a rising desire on the part of the Japanese to do more to defend themselves given their, their environment. Um, but, I, but again, I think this, 
this commitment to pacifism, which was imposed on them in, in the aftermath of World War II, is no longer an imposition. In many respects, it is still, it, it, in many respects now, it is inculcated in them. And so this idea that removing, this gets back to the other question about, about the, removing the security umbrella, this idea that the U.S. security umbrella is the cork in the bottle and the Japanese militarism is just waiting to explode like so much champagne, the moment we sort of kind of question it, I think that's, I think that's not accurate. I think it's based on an inaccurate uh, assessment of, of Japanese kind of public sentiment towards, towards warfare and towards military operations and, and aggressive foreign policy. And because of our military umbrella, they've been able to spend less on their Correct. They, we, we published a paper earlier this year, which I, I like a lot, by Jennifer Lin, who's a professor at Dartmouth, and, and she's written a number, she's written a book on, on, on uh, Japan, uh, indirectly at least, and a number of papers on it. It's called uh, Japan Security Evolution, and the best line from that paper is the simplest line is, Japan does more when it must, less when it can. Um, and in that respect, they are not so different from other countries around the world. Right, um, and and now they are in a situation where they feel like they might they they should do more, they must do more, and and the next the the, the next shoe to drop is whether it actually happens, whether or not military spending, for example, as a share of GDP, GDP does rise slightly. We'll have to watch and see if that happens. There's some talk that it will. Little bit of evidence that it has ever so slightly. Um, but that's a indicator of their seriousness in doing more to defend themselves and their interests. So, but I, it's not written into the Constitution. I don't think is it right? I don't think so. Do you remember? I don't think. I don't think so. I think it's more. It's a good question. I'm going to go back and double check. But I, I don't think it's written into the Constitution. So the answer to my question is it's not explicit. No, I don't believe so. I don't know, but I'm going to check on that. Yes, sir. Who's next? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, Paul Steger, Chris. Hey, Paul. Chris, would you um, uh, analyze and or comment on the foreign policy directions of both uh, Trump and Clinton and, <clears throat> if possible, in your opinion, because it's certainly confusing for me, do you, do you have a relatively firm opinion as to, among those two, if there is a clear lesser of evils? <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Um, yeah. Um, the answer to your question is no. Uh, the, the longer answer to your question is this. Um, Hillary Clinton, over her long public career, has uh, exhibited a um, kind of classic primacist approach to the world, okay? So she is very much in the foreign policy mainstream of the, so the elite consensus, the elite ideas about what foreign policy works. And so any number of the hundreds, and I'm not lying, hundreds of people who advise her on foreign policy are primacists. They buy into this idea. Um, on top of that, I think she has exhibited a, an even greater willingness to use force than the typical primacy consensus. In other words, she is more confident in the ability of the US military to fix foreign problems and believes that we should do so. Um, I think one of her true 
um, kind of models, her, one of her real uh, idols, is Madeleine Albright. Right? And Madeleine Albright was one of the people who talked about the indispensable nation. We talked about how the United States, when we act, we see farther than anyone in the world. My favorite Madeleine Albright quote, um, which I use in my book, is um, actually taken from Colin Powell's memoir when uh, she said to Colin Powell, then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what's the point of this wonderful military you always, you're always talking about if we can't use it? Um, Powell reported in his memoir that he about had an aneurysm when she said that, um, that he said, you know, the U.S. soldiers are not so many toy chess pieces to be moved around a chessboard. Um, but interestingly, Albright does not dispute that exchange. In fact, in her own memoir, she also celebrates that exchange. So in her, in her mind, there is nothing wrong whatsoever with asking the U.S. military, what is the object, what is your object if we, policymakers, can't use you? And I think, I think Hillary Clinton definitely falls in that gap. Um, Caleb Brown, who you know as the voice of liberty, some of you do, if you listen to Cato podcast, he says Hillary Clinton has supported 10 of America's last six wars. It seems about right. I can't, that's too good a line. That's too good a line. I can't not use it, but I got to give credit where credit's due. Um, so she has a, a pattern of hawkishness. Uh, Donald Trump has a pattern of reckless comments, right? Rhetoric, in, uh, uh, ill-considered or poorly considered or, or things like that. It's inconsistent, even incoherent. That does not mean that occasionally he says things that sound sort of restrained. Like, for example, when he talks about free-riding allies, okay? Um, but I think this is more a case of a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, right? I mean, there is no, because, and, I, and I've tried, I've, I've really genuinely tried to discern some consistent, identifiable philosophy to, in terms of dealing with the world that's not primacy, that's something else, and he doesn't have one, right? So it's occasional bellicosity, real bellicosity, like, um, committing war crimes, which is killing terrorist families, which is, you know, that's a war crime. Um, we may not like it, but that's just the reality of it. So there's that. Um, he claims to have opposed the Iraq war. Not true. Um, he opposed the Iraq war basically when everybody else opposed the Iraq war, when it went south. Um, but he was not on the front lines of, of the Cato Institute and others who were arguing against the war in 2002, for example, when it actually was difficult to do so, when, when a lot of people were very critical of the few who stood up against the war. He wasn't he didn't stand up and be counted then. Um, he uh, claims to have opposed the intervention in Libya, but in fact did not oppose the intervention in Libya. So, so it, it's, it's not a very consistent pattern of restraint. And so that gives me some, that doesn't give me a lot of uh, confidence about how he would conduct himself in foreign affairs. Um, so it's pretty bleak. Uh, so that's why I thank you for that question, Paul. But uh, I will say... Um, there's still time for a serious discussion, a debate over U.S. foreign policy. There is, at a minimum, time for the public, but especially the media, the news media, to press both of these major candidates on their views and 
to recognize there are other candidates on the ballot besides just Democrats and Republicans. Um, I think Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, in addition to being sort of good guys from what I can tell, um, their views on foreign policy are, are, are fairly consistent with restraint for the most part. Um, and, uh, and so, and then there's, you know, there's also Jill Stein. I mean, there are other people on the ballot. So again, we sort of get away from this either or proposition. Uh, at a minimum, if we did that, I think we would have a better debate over foreign policy going forward. All right, so I have four questions and, and eight minutes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have quicker answers uh, if you ask quicker questions. Easy, easier questions. Good morning. Yes. I'm Alejandro Salinas, yes, a rising I'm. junior at Embry-Riddle. My question is, from the restraint perspective, is foreign policy such a zero-sum game that American power projection, if not for, would be then filled by another? <clears throat> That's a great question. And, and it's, it's, there is actually a simple answer, and most simple answers are wrong. Okay, If I believed that the only plausible alternative to American primacy, to American global hegemony, was Chinese global hegemony, then I'd be an utter idiot to be arguing for an end of primacy, right? So I don't believe that is the only alternative, nor do I believe it is the most likely alternative. What I think is the most likely alternative is more countries in more places taking responsibility for their security, being able to deal with small problems and local problems before they become regional and global ones, with a US military that did the same in its hemisphere. You know, half the world is a pretty big responsibility. I could tell you know, that'd be good enough for me. And then when a problem arises that is not clearly in the capacity of the local actors to deal with in a responsible way, then the US military has the ability to react. But that's a big difference, right, between claiming to be shaping the international order as opposed to dealing with threats as they arise. Big, big difference. So that's what I see. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. I agree with most of what you say. I have two, two questions, though. Sir. One of them is the, the Minuteman image of a standing army. Mm. Uh, both the Navy Times and the Marine Corps Gazette say, says it takes somewhere between 14 and 18 months to qualify a, a, a recruit or, or, or a basic officer to do the fundamentals of their MOS. That's a year and a half. Yes. So one of the things about the standing army, and I think the Defense Department projects this, is what are the needs in the future, and, and we have to start a year and a half in advance. So yep. the idea that we can just call up all the neighbors and get their guns and go, that's so out of, I'm not even sure that's useful anymore. Okay. But the second point I would make is on the basis of a philosophical argument when a, a generality is provided as a rule, but you can think of one exception that the rule is probably not good. The, you made the comment that, that a non-state player probably would not be able to significantly disrupt the, the world economy. I'll just remind you on 9-11, there was a significant disruption in the world economy. What would have happened instead of four airplanes, which was a sophisticated attack, had been four freighters with a nuclear weapon in the Panama Canal, New York City, and picked two others? I, I, I really think there's a lot of suspicion for the idea that a non-state actor could not bring that kind of damage. Okay, so. two excellent points. Uh, the second one I would address by simply saying that the attacks of 9-11 occurred under, the, under primacy, under the idea that the United States was shaping the international system. So, so they also don't have a perfect track record. So I, I'm, I'm arguing against an imperfect model, um, which is costly, uh, after all. But to your, to your other point about the Army, especially, it's about the Army. Um, I believe that, unlike the, the Constitution, I believe that we should have a standing Army. I just think it should be a smaller one. 
okay? Not none, but smaller. Uh, because you're right. Uh, training up people in a modern military setting uh, takes longer than recruits for World War II or World War I. No, no dispute. Uh, the difference, however, is, is in what scenarios does the United States need 450,000 Army personnel, active duty, to fight a ground war? So, so you should sort of think, think through the scenarios that require us to have that force in being ready to go right now, immediately, as opposed to over time staffing up. And you can augment with reservists in the interim, right, who are also well-trained, but not full-time active troops. Right. Right. Yes, if if the only country in the world that is expected to deal with any problem in the world is the United States of America, and I think that's not the right approach. I think the right approach is that the United States is one of many countries, certainly the most important country, but not the only one. Uh, yes, sir. Who's next? Two questions, three minutes. Go ahead. Um, uh, hello, Alexis Kramers from France. Hi. Um, so I think the best national defense actually is probably trade. And just uh, acknowledging the fact that it, since the 1950s, it might not be because of the, we had the, uh, the best military in the world, that the world is a safe place, but, but because countries have become so much more interdependent. I yes. mean, if you talk, there's a lot of talk about China and the fact that there could be a, a military standoff between China and the US. But, I mean, China holds two trillion in US government bonds. Right. Uh, China imports most of its oil. Uh, wouldn't it be ludicrous to think that China could one day go to war with the US for this reason? Um, and in this yeah. case, uh, isn't uh, the possibility of a trade war under Donald Trump actually the, the most, uh, like the, the most dangerous thing that could happen to the U.S. in the, in the foreseeable future? Um, th yes. So the, the short answer to your second question is yes. That's a, that's a serious concern. Um, I generally agree with you, and I think that there is quite a bit of wisdom in the old saying, when goods cross borders, armies don't. Uh, and I would like to believe that it is ludicrous, as you say, that... The China, that it, was, it would be ludicrous to believe that China and the United States could fight a war with one another because of the, of the inter, economic interdependence between our two economies. I would like to believe that to be true. I think that we should do everything that we can to ensure that it is true, but we also need to be mindful of the exceptions to that rule. Um, and after all, the two leading trading partners in the world in 1914 were Germany and Great Britain before they went to war with one another. So it is not a perfect solution. There are other explanations for conflict besides trade or the absence of it. And so, um, but I agree with you that we should be driving in that direction and speaking honestly that it is not in their interest to do that. I have one minute. Well, actually, you can ask the question, but you don't have time to answer. 
All right, Vincent Argenbell, and the quick question is, um, well, reduced now. Just talk a little bit about how in foreign policy, uh, having a ready gun at the State Department, thinking, kills their, their initiative to come to another resolution. <laughs> right. Okay, but no time to respond. <laughs> when you have a large, let me just down. When you have a really big hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> 